You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Welcome all to this week's Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm David Grubbs, an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. With me today is Michael Farmer, assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. How's your morning going, sir? Pretty good, David. How are you? Oh, pretty decent. Right into work wasn't too bad, so, you know, that, that sets a lot of my mood. How about you, Nathan? Uh, Nathan Gilmore. Associate <laughs> Professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin, Smith, Georgia. How about you? Uh, I'm rocking and rolling, man, and now I remember who I am, so thank you for that. Excellent, excellent. I'm here for you. I'm here for you, man. <laughs> the semester's over for you already, Nathan? Is that right? Yeah, pretty much. No, I mean, in, in all seriousness, by the time this episode drops, I will have turned in midterm grades. You know, next time that uh, we record, dear listeners, um, Nathan's going to be speaking to us from the year 2025. <laughs> he, he lives three months at a time every week yeah he's on uh, an, ex- an, exe- an accelerated timeline i'm certainly awake enough hours <laughs> Oof. well uh today our uh, our topic is harking back to the lecture which we discussed a couple episodes ago we're talking about the seminar today so we're 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 flipping the format as it were. Mm-hmm. But before we get into that, is there any housekeeping that we want to do? Uh, anything going on the network we want to highlight before we move on? Yeah, uh, by the time this airs, I should have an interview up with Stephen Backhouse about his new Kierkegaard biography. That'll be on the Christian Humanist Profiles feed. Very cool. Oh, cool. Well, and I'm sure looking. City of Man will have something up there. Probably. Worth listening to. Well, there are listeners, pay attention to uh, ChristianHumanist.org to see when uh, when new shows post, as well as uh, Twitter and Facebook and those various kinds of other social media ways that you can stalk us in a benign way. <laughs> Will, I wanted to get a definition of seminar, Nathan. So being of a philological bent, I looked up the etymology, and apparently it has something to do with growing seeds. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to pitch the dictionary question at you. When you and Michael advocate for a seminar style in the classroom, what do you mean? What are you? How are you going to define that? And does it have anything to do with gardening? Uh, it does have something to do with gardening etymolo- etymologically. It also has something to do with the rise of the seminary as an educational institution in the uh, uh-huh. wake of the Continental Reformation. Uh, schools emerged that started to take on the name seminaries, uh, largely among Catholic circles, although Protestants had their own. Uh, and the idea that was that uh, the intellect 
And of course, the intellect became very important there in the 16th, 17th centuries because there were intellectual battles going on and you wanted to have intellectual soldiers handy. Uh, they needed to be cultivated in the, in the manner of a seeds being cultivated in a garden. So the image behind that seminar, uh, uh, the image behind the word seminar, pardon me, uh, is that the intellect is not uh, merely a product that you can uh, forge in a smith shop, and it's not something like a uh, an ocean that simply g- comes and goes as the tides roll in and out, uh, but rather it's something that requires some interaction, that requires some cultivation. Uh, cultus, of course, you know, uh, that religious word, also having to do with gardening, so... Lots of gardening metaphors going on here. Um, as far as you know, what the seminar style is, uh, I actually didn't get as clear a sense of when the seminary gave way to the seminar, not as an institution, but a sort of classroom style. Uh, but when we talk about the seminar, uh, at least for the last few decades, and, and listeners, I mean, if you have a notion of when someone's decided to start calling these things seminars, do, please do write in. It's hard because uh, when you search for uh, history of seminar, you end up with a bunch of uh, course descriptions for history seminars. <laughs> and, and I'll admit, I've this last week and a half, I've just been blitzed, so I didn't get a chance to get over to the library, to the OED, to see when the first attestation of the noun seminar is. If one of you did, I'd be glad to hear it. But uh, what we mean by a seminar is usually a class with a smaller enrollment, uh, smaller, that is, than a lecture section, uh, but that doesn't proceed in the recitation form that that I associate with sort of Renaissance education. So in other words, it's not that you simply prepare material and then the instructor has you recite the material and then corrects your recitation, uh, but rather... Ideas are the seeds, if you will, to misappropriate the parable of the sower. Uh, And the process of a seminar class is to present ideas and then by discussion and refutation and, I guess, revision in the course of a conversation that that takes place over the time allotted, uh, those ideas actually do get cultivated and then in turn those present get cultivated as plants do. So, uh, Michael, I know this wasn't your question to prep, but, I mean, do you know anything about, uh, you already said, I mean, you kind of like me tried to find the beginning of seminar and all you found was seminar, history of Ireland. <laughs> right, yeah, no, it was it was difficult. Now, I, like you, I didn't go to the library or put any kind of serious effort in it at researching <laughs> this question. But, well, I, at, at least I feel guilty about it. I, I know that I should have. I what just is didn't. your question? That's true enough. <laughs> but that's okay. I didn't do any serious research for any of mine either. So, <laughs> but no, I I um I was surprised to see that the the word is apparently not ancient. Because mm-hmm. it, it it I mean, as a Latinate word, I assumed it went back to some sort of like ancient practice but it, it apparently does not as far as i can tell like you said it yeah it comes out of the the seminary which itself is not an ancient word i guess no no the seminary as an institution has its roots in the uh the counter-reformation as it gets called of the tridentine period do you do you have a sense of why like 
I know Emily Dickinson went to a school that was called a seminary. It was just a women's uh-huh. college. Do you have any sense of, of when seminary stopped being a generic institution or a generic college and started being a particular institution? Uh, no, I, I really – well, I guess the sense that I get is that it started out as a specifically targeted institution. So in other words, I mean it was for the intellectual training of priests so that they could keep the parishioners from going Protestant and then later on became a more generalized kind of institution before it then returned to a more specific preacher training school. It's very interesting because, I mean, you, you always hear of Emily Dickinson as having attended seminary, but, uh-huh. but it, in this case it's just a women's college. It's not – she was not trained in the ministry. Yeah. Right, right. So I looked it up in the OED. I'll go ahead. Apparently, the use of the word seminary to mean a generic place of education mm-hmm. and to be uh, used for a school for training um, priests or ministers, mm-hmm. uh, both of those showed up around the, uh, around the same time in the 1580s. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, so, so your location of it in, in, the, in that kind of counter-reformation era... Um, is 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 made sense of in the dates, but mm-hmm. but yeah, both of those are both of those uses are are pretty well attested from about the same time. Okay, and that makes some sense because now that I think about it, the movement towards a sort of universal literate education does have its roots in that Reformation period when the idea was that you know by educating people properly. Uh, you could keep them from being swayed by the bad ideas of the other side. Mm-hmm. So, so the only reason you need a word for seminary is that all of a sudden university covers other stuff. Right, right. Or college, or academy, or... Mm-hmm. But, you know, we're English, man. We we collect all kinds of redundant vocabulary. That's, <laughs> that's, that's our bag. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, what I thought was interesting is is seminar comes from a German word that comes from a Latin word that that can't be very common. I'm not a history, uh, I'm not a historian of linguistics, but typically your English words either come from a German word or a Latin word, not, not from both. a German word that was a Latin word. <laughs> right, right. Although German also doesn't that also mean seed? Isn't it also cognate with with a word for seed? That's accidental. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> We're a long way from talking about seminars, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it, um, and this I, is I, this is the danger of holding a seminar, by the way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> nice. Well, my, my guess in looking at the OED's definition of seminar when it traces it to the German is not is is that the German universities adopted this style and they used that Latin term to describe that style, and then when English speaking education in you know UK and the US um, adopted it they used the term that the Germans were using ah so, so it's not mm-hmm. coming from old german no no it's not it's not it's not that old but it's it's more like the the kind of latter half of the 19th century um, you know german higher ed it's so hot right now mhm i guess another one of those terms michael that took that path would be something like doktorvater the the German term for a dissertation yes. director. Really, it's 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 Doctor Father. Oh yeah yeah yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, I, I I sometimes you know with my tongue in my cheek refer to uh, 
Fran Teague as my Dr. Mater. Mm. Yeah. Which is really what Darth Vader means, if you look it up in the original Sith. <laughs> All right. Keep moving, David. Keep moving. Yes. <laughs> All right. So if we start grubbing, if we want to grub up historical roots or historical precedents for the seminar, I know that, you know, I don't. I, I think that we could probably go further back than, you know, 19th century Germany. Um, if we were going to grub around for historical precedents, Michael, what examples would you mention? Like Greek symposia, Jesus and the Twelve, Luther drinking beer with his pals. Um, what kinds of stuff would you point to? A detour on those Luther table talks. I've never read them, but from what I was reading about them, it seems like people just followed Luther around and wrote down everything he said. Like Johnson. Because <laughs> it sounds more like a lecture than a, a conversation to me, but I've never read, I've never read the table talk, so I don't know. Mm-hmm. Are, those, are those meaningfully conversational? <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's, it's hard to kind of reconstruct what the context would be. I mean, if the students were only writing it down when drunk Martin Luther said things worth writing down, um, then it's not going to preserve whatever, whatever conversation elicited that you know, jag that he went off on. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So maybe, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the symposium and Jesus and the 12 seem to me to be two different styles of, of semi-academic conversation. And, mm-hmm. and everything I know about the symposium comes from Plato's symposium. So I, you know, I mm-hmm. don't, I don't have a sense <laughs> of how representative that is, but in the Plato symposium, you basically got a speaking contest. Mm-hmm. Where uh, the various members are coming together and and giving a lecture about love, and when you combine all those lectures together, you get not a lecture but a very particular, very um, formalized type of discussion. And I believe it's been a while since I read the symposium, but I believe somebody's declared the winner. Is that correct? Uh, no, actually, they're about to, but then Alcibiades shows up drunk as a skunk. Yeah, but they're, and... they're, somebody's supposed to be declared the winner, is what I'm saying. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's what was supposed to happen. It just didn't. Is it is it a <laughs> vote, or is there a governing body? Uh, you know, I don't think Plato's text ever says either way. I, I teach it every fall, so you'd think I would remember, but I, I don't remember how they're going to determine that. Because when, when I think of Plato's symposium, I think of a group of lectures without, without somebody being in charge. Yeah, and and in that sense, in that sense, it seems much more. It seems much more like a graduate level seminar where where the uh, the, the job the job of the professor is just to kind of I, I don't know keep things going. Maybe it's harder than I think it is, having never led a graduate level seminar. But uh, it, it it seems to me that that those tend to be much more a collection of equals talking, whereas an undergraduate seminar probably looks a little bit more like Jesus and the Twelve in the sense that. Mm. That is not a meeting of equals. Obviously, Jesus has a place he wants to go, and he's listening to the uh, he's listening to the twelve disciples, and yet he's pushing the conversation the direction he wants to go. And that that is much truer to my understanding of undergraduate seminars. Um, Hmm. You you can't just you can't let especially in the lower level classes you can't just let them go any direction they'd like to they need to be directed mm-hmm. and that's what Jesus mm-hmm. is doing when he's talking to the disciples uh, less, well, although, less of the symposium yeah although in the graduate seminars I've been part of I mean the professor has often had to do that when you know someone who only loves Lacan goes off on a ten minute jag on Lacan no that's true <laughs> it falls to the professor to say okay let's 
let's return and talk about Chaucer, shall we? But in that in that sense, <laughs> yeah. in that sense, the the professor's a referee, and in, um, in the sense in the sense Jesus is doing it, he's really more of a shepherd. You know, he he's directing oh, them. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I I would still say that's closer that's closer to the Platonic model than to the mm-hmm. the Christian model. Mm-hmm. The other thing to point out, I, I think, would be the Oxbridge-style tutoring that mm-hmm. that, that, uh, that characterizes both Oxford and Cambridge. Oxford calls them tutorials. I can't remember what Cambridge calls them, but they call them something different. Do either of you know? Not offhand. And mm-hmm. and there, uh, you are reading, and then you're getting together with your tutor and maybe two or three other people. And you're having a conversation about what you read. Having never been involved in one of those, I'm not sure the degree to which the tutor, whether he's more like Christ or whether he's more like Socrates. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I would say that is, in terms of actual pedagogy, probably the root of the, the seminar is, is the, mm-hmm. the Oxbridge tutorial. Uh, done today, of course, by St. John's University and uh, by the Tory Honors Institute at Viola, and probably other places mm-hmm. as well. I know mm-hmm. George Fox's Honors Institute works the same way. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, hopefully next school year at Emmanuel College. Oh, that's right, because you're, you're pushing that direction. And, and I am, too, here at Crown, although we're going to have to get more students in our program. So, hey, <laughs> parrots, send your students here so I can, so I can institute that sort of uh, Oxbridge-style tutorial. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that... that um, that that is what I would point to is the is the tutorial along as David points out with the with the symposium and with Jesus's mm-hmm. kind of side conversations with his yeah. disciples. I'm I'm less sold on Lutherian uh, <laughs> table talk, but hey, who knows? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, if you look at the at, at the Greek symposia, not necessarily the one that that's in in Plato's dialogue, but they were they were drinking parties. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Where, whereas in grad school, usually you wait till after, <laughs> right? But I, I wonder about um, uh, just my reading around the the biographies of the Inklings that you know both Tolkien and Lewis were almost obsessively involved in clubs, right? Mm-hmm. From their, you know, kind of their 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 days off at boarding school to you know to undergraduates, and then even after that in their professional careers, they always gathered around them other students, and then later other you know other other uh, professors, but even you know even people who weren't professional academics to engage in these kind of informal conversations around texts for fun. I wonder the degree to which the seminar, you know, adopting the seminar in the classroom is replicating or, or attempting to put into our students' life something that in previous generations people sought out for fun. Well, mm-hmm. People still seek them out for fun, I think. I mean, this podcast is, is pretty much exactly what you're describing. Oh, that's true. Fair and, and, you know, people listen to it. So, mm-hmm. so I, I, really? I <laughs> Not a lot of people, but <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it's definitely become sort of a niche market to be sure. But I mean, even at our campus, you know, I'm the sponsor of uh, the Emanuel College Christian Humanists, mm-hmm. which I love calling it that because it sounds like we've got a colony. Uh, but I mean, there are students to be sure who come to that because you know their professors. I'm one of them. You know, offer a little nugget of extra credit for going to a Socrates cafe. 
But I mean, usually that is half or less than half of the students who show up. I mean, there are folks who do just want to come and have a broad ranging conversation for the enjoyment of it. Mm -hmm. And, and and I I would say the seminar in the classroom has got to be different than that. Mm -hmm. But because the, the seminar in the classroom has to be directed, the, Mm. the, especially undergraduate, the, the professor has to, has to be above the students. And, and the seminar is a way of flattening that height, but he still, or she still has to, has to know where she wants to go and and direct the the conversation thusly. It's not free ranging mm-hmm. or it shouldn't be free ranging. And and when mine get free ranging, it's usually because it's Friday afternoon and we're all tired. Mm. Mhm. Well, that you know, that that actually steers us into our next couple of questions, Michael. So, thank you for an excellent segue. <laughs> uh, because what's often pointed to in the seminar style is uh, the the model of the Socratic method of teaching, which in some ways to me seems like the exactly the opposite of trying to steer it, <laughs> mm-hmm. except, you know, uh, there's always Plato lurking in the background composing this conversation <laughs> so that, you know, uh-huh. to, to what degree is that an effective art? Anyway, Nathan, of the three of us, you seem the fondest of pestering folks with hard questions and, and apparently you also have Socratic cafes, which I'm not exactly sure how that worked. Does 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 the waiter then pepper you with questions? You know? <laughs> no, they, they make him drink hemlock tea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you only you only go to one Socratic cafe. Yeah. I, I, actually Danny Anderson did uh pose that question to me because I we were it wasn't even at a Socrates cafe, but he was talking with some students and I kinda wandered into the conversation and I started uh, peppering him with hard questions, as David said. And at, at one point, Danny Anderson said, Gilmore, you do realize they made Socrates drink poison, right? <laughs> well, I'm not going to make you drink poison, but I am going to ask you to explain and defend the Socratic method. So, so go. Well, certainly. This is where, you know, Michael's uh, earlier statement that the professor, you know, needs to be directing... Uh, where the conversation goes, it gets a little bit more complex than that. I won't simply negate it and say that I have no idea where the conversation is going, but I will say that when I do the Socratic method and, and I'm sure, you know, if you've got seven professors who think they do Socratic method, you're probably talking about nine different methods, but I do (laughs) honestly try to keep things open-ended enough that I never teach the same text the same way twice. Uh, so in other words, you know, certainly I am doing the job of, you know, posing follow-up questions, uh, responding to where the conversation is going. If someone goes off on a jag about Dr. Who, bringing them back to Gerta. Uh, but that one actually happened, by the way. Uh, but um, again, I'm, I'm because, you know, my own philosophy of the classroom is that, you know, I don't have a certain set of data that I want the students to have heard by the end of the hour. I'm more interested in developing the sort of habits of mind that come from that hard-driving intellectual questioning. Uh, I I really do mean it when I say that I've never taught book five of the Consolation of Philosophy the same way twice, because I am responding to what the students say and then coming back with follow-up questions based on 
what I sort of discern in the moment that the students need to take on next. No so doubt, this- no doubt. And, and and that's right, you read the room, but also mm-hmm. you must have a certain number of things that you think you've got to talk about. Usually no. Really? You Like, if if you didn't cover a single thing, like you didn't talk about what allegory is, if you didn't... I, I haven't read the book five of the Fairy Queen in ten years, but if you if you uh-huh. didn't if you didn't talk about the importance of the robot in in the the development of science fiction, that wouldn't bother you. You 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 don't go in feeling like there's anything you need to cover. It's completely how the room pushes you. I'll put it to you this way, Michael. I mean, there have been times when we've gotten done with the class, and I think I kind of wish that we had done this thing that I would have preferred to talk about. But then when I take a step back from that and realize that what I have done is taken their thoughts that they're already having and helping them to sharpen that, I think that I can say without crossing my fingers that I would rather do that than hit the things that I'm most fond of talking about. And it's not an either or. I mean, in, in almost oh, every sure, classroom, sure, sure. you're going to yeah, do yeah. both of them. But I, I, yeah. guess, I guess I go, in, I go in with a list of questions. And uh-huh. if we don't cover all those questions, that's fine. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. when there's a lull in the conversation, that's where I'm going. Oh, sure, and that that's certainly the case. But if there's not a lull, I try not to impose myself and you know say, okay, we must go this direction. Except in the cases, like we said, where you know someone goes off in a direction that is obviously one student's hobby horse rather than something that the class will benefit from. So yeah, I mean, I and and, and thank you, Michael, for qualifying that for me because it's not by any means an absolute thing. But I will say that, I mean, I tend to be more radically Socratic than a lot of folks are for precisely the reasons you're talking about. Uh, you know, I am much more interested in the sort of virtue ethics concerns of humanities teaching than I am with getting, partic- like I said, particular data spoken in the confines of the 50 or 75 minute class period. Hmm. And for that reason, you know, I mean, I... Uh, to go back a couple weeks, and listeners, if you haven't listened to the lecture one, this really is turning into a counterpart to that one, so go back and listen to that one after this one, or pause this one and listen to that one, whatever, however you want to do it, but you know, <laughs> for that reason, I mean, I, I was thinking, David, after we talked about that, you said that you spend your lecture time doing, you know, dating and authorship and, you know, the sort of, you know, German introduction to a mm-hmm. text, and it occurred to me that depending on the context, I might never get to that stuff because that might not be what I sense that the class needs. Mm. And and again, I don't think that, you know, my way is better, but you know, when I narrate how I actually practice humanities teaching, I mean that, you know, it might be that in a given conversation, because the students are very interested in contextualizing and historicizing, we do talk about manuscript transmission and, disputes about dating and you know the material conditions of authorship in a period or it might be that we talk about something entirely different don't don't you think they need a certain amount of information that you have to provide to have a conversation at a certain level um if i do then i assign that as the reading before we come to class okay Usually, again, usually when we begin a new a new text, I'll spend five to ten minutes in a kind of informal lecture giving background information. Okay. Here, here's how the Odyssey was originally presented, for example, and then you know that that's information that they can use to kind of formulate their views as we go. 
Right. So at at that point, they still get the they still get the raw interaction with the text at home, uh-huh. and then they can come in and get that background information and build from it. I gotcha. And I used to do it that way, Michael. What I usually do now is, if we get hung up on a point that would become more beneficial if they had that background information, that's when I launch into the little ninety second mini lecture. Mm-hmm. If if it doesn't, then I don't. Yeah. Yeah, because you know if uh, you know I'm I'm you know I've got a, sh- a Shakespeare class on my roster this semester, mm-hmm. and you know that, that there have been times when it it really was kind of necessary to step back and say okay before you get too in love with this argument that you're about to make, um, mm-hmm. the 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 speech that you're really trying to you know to work with here and 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 have do all this work in Shakespeare. Um, only shows up in this one part of the textual evidence, mm-hmm. right? So right. Can, yeah. can you, you know, you, I wouldn't hang all of Hamlet on this on this one speech because Hamlets exist that don't have it. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And then just to say one more thing in defense of this Socratic method, and like I said, uh, mine is not the only Socratic method. I, I get a sense from conversations with other teachers that. Mine might be a more radically Socratic method than most. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the great benefits of it is that, again, trying to discern where the room is and you know, actually molding the content to the room in the course of conducting the class, I can a lot of times kind of push them to those existential contradictions that if you, you know, kind of put them in a lecture form, Students can say that's an interesting idea, kind of like the Athenians in Acts 17. You know, this mm-hmm. this is fascinating material. We should talk again sometime. <laughs> but if I can do that in the course of a dialogue, I can get kind of get them to that. I don't want to call it existential crisis. That's a bit grandiose. But I can push them into that contradiction on a more whole soul level rather than simply awareness that somebody could think it. Mm. Yeah, and I mean that, that's what the that's what the seminar is best at. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the reasons, at least that, or you know, in the in in the dialogue Socrates gives for for that method is his assumption mm-hmm. that the person he's talking to really, at some level, already knows the truth, and so he's just peppering with questions to get him to remember it. Right, the midwife. Yeah. And I'm I'm not assuming that you think that all of your students have pre-existent souls possessed of all knowledge that you oh, just no, have no, to no, ex- no, excavate, no. but you yeah. do seem to be much more trusting of the of the mem- of of the momentum or of the mm-hmm. substance of what they bring in terms of their inquiry of, of getting at what's important. Oh, you're right. I mean, you know, as we say so often on this podcast, I'm definitely. Uh, I, I was born first of the three of us, but I'm definitely the biggest Pollyanna. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Cool. Well, speaking of someone who's also wanting to turn this the, the, the classroom over to the students, Michael, um, one of the texts that came up in our episode on lectures was uh, Paulo Freire's banking concept of education. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what are Freire's reasons for preferring discussion to a lecture and do do those reasons figure into your teaching? I will say up front, I have read a small excerpt from Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which is what that that 
concept comes from, but I've not mm-hmm. read the whole book, so I don't I don't want to I don't want to present what I'm about to say as like a complete understanding of Paulo Ferreira. Um, mm-hmm. The banking concept of education suggests that students are essentially empty vessels, piggy banks, if you want to think of them that way, that need to be filled by the uh, wise, wise teacher. And so the teacher has information, and the students do not have information, and so the classroom environment is the teacher giving information to the students who then leave the, leave the room knowing things. Mm-hmm. Ferrer doesn't like this because, uh, well, it... it, it, it reinforces power structures and if you think especially in the developing world where your teachers are likely to be western or western trained coming back in there's a there's a certain sort of racial discomfort shall we say or class discomfort uh with that Mm -hmm. what he wants instead is to empower the students to allow them to create or discover i'm not sure which i'm not sure if he i know he he likes create i'm not sure if he would like discover uh, knowledge of their own, and so the the seminar is one way to do that because they're they're formulating their ideas and kind of fighting for their own intellectual freedom. Mm. I think that's a little mm-hmm. grandiose, and and um, I, I, I that doesn't mean I completely discount it, but I, I don't I don't know. Maybe am I? Have either of you read Frere more than I have? Uh, I read the entire book, but it was years ago. How much is he setting it off like the 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 students are fighting against the professor? Um, because that's the that's the impression I've gotten from the little pieces I've read. Right. I mean the uh, the impression that I got, and again, I'll I'll just go ahead and preface this saying. I mean, it was years ago that I read it. Uh, is that he is interested, in, and and I'll go ahead and say that I mean my memory of Ferreira has shaped the way that I teach. Mm-hmm. But that the the classroom setting in the sort of uh, classroom of liberation or whatever phrase he uses to describe the opposite of banking uh, banking lecture, right, uh, is that the classroom is an invitation to the students uh, to become critics of the material, even as the professor, you know, stands as a sort of uh, antagonist for the students to do battle against. So, I mean, it is a battle against the professor but it's a stylized battle as i remember it now that that said i might be projecting back onto ferrera what i've sort of become as a teacher so you wouldn't um you 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 would you would you consider yourself as 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 kind of more in sympathy with the um the the goals that he sees in education of of empowering uh, empowering the students and and so forth. I'll, I'll put it to you this way. I mean, and, and this is where again, Michael's narrative of how he conducts an undergraduate seminar differ from the way that I would narrate mine because I often hear myself saying to students, "Okay, I've got this idea, but I'm pretty sure I'm wrong, so I need you to tell me why I'm wrong." Yeah, oh, I, I do that too, and I, I sometimes. Uh-huh. I sometimes present a quotation or a reading from another critic, and I say, "What do you think?" Mm-hmm. Encourage them to mm-hmm. fight against it. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't like the. Um, I'm going to present this material to you, and you can tell me why it's wrong. That 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 makes me, that makes me a little nervous. I, I agree that, that that's part of what reading is, and you want to teach them that they don't have to believe everything they read, but it mm-hmm. seems uncharitable. 
It, it seems okay. It, it, especially with younger students, it, it, I, I worry about going in and telling them, you know, everything you think is right and everything, everything that disagrees with you is wrong. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you don't want to just teach them to like passively accept information. So maybe what we're talking about here is good Frere style teaching and bad <laughs> Frere style oh, teaching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I definitely think you're onto something mm-hmm. there because when I say. I'm going to give you this idea. Tell me why I'm wrong. I don't then take everything that they say in response to that as the final word. I come back at them and I do the Socratic thing with them, right? You know, I find the contradictions in what they are saying so that they have to take the next step. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and whatever they say, I tend to push against them. So if they hate mm-hmm. the text, I, 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 speak with the voice of the text and if they passively accept the text i speak with the voice of opposition so i mean maybe maybe i'm doing what frera says to do anyway Mm -hmm. and again i i'll i'll apologize again i mean i i looked at a few relevant passages before the podcast but i didn't reread the entire Mm. pedagogy of the oppressed by any means and i've never read it well one of the things that i appreciated about it um and 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 let and let's just let, let's just be quite honest. I've got way too much, you know, Edie Hirsch cultural literacy pumping <laughs> through me to to completely surrender, you know, the Western canon to to you know to the barbarians at the gate. Um, <laughs> I'm so classist. Anyway, um, but I I do like the idea that my students all show up with valuable knowledge mm-hmm. that that the material that we're looking at in the class will um, meaningfully benefit from encountering and that encouraging students to continue, you know, to be themselves and bring to the discussion, you know, who they are in their background and in their interest and in their experience. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe not necessarily to say I don't have anything valuable to give you. I, I still kind of feel like a bank, but to say you guys didn't show up poor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, right, and and I, I guess the way that I would kind of you know, and and again I'm going to be Hegelian here, and you know, since we've got a contradiction, let's see how that generates the energy to move past the contradiction. Nice. But you know, I I, I would say that you know the idea that students are empty and I fill them up isn't quite right. Mm-hmm. I would say that, you know, the idea that students already have all they need and I'm just there to give them confidence isn't quite right. Mm-hmm. I'm more inclined, and I mean, th- this is kind of a Jamie Smith way of thinking of things. Um, I'm more inclined to think that I am a master practitioner in the practice that we call posing questions. Mm-hmm. And that students learn from me not by listening to me do what I do, but by doing what they do and then basically, you know, being structurally in a place where I can sort of coach them so that they become better posers of questions. So Nicky Monkey and ethics kinds of stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah. Cool beans. Yeah, yeah, would you, would you say in a lit course there's, there's no information they need to remember? Oh, I, I, let me put it to you this way. I mean, I, I don't think of it in terms of information. I think of it in terms of the exhibits that we are interpreting together. And I'm mainly interested, like I said, in sharpening those practices of 
interpretation. So, I mean, I, I, I really do. And I mean, my, my colleagues here at Emanuel think I'm just as much of a Pollyanna as you guys do right now. But I mean, <laughs> I, I go in assuming that they're going to read. And when they don't, I really am genuinely disappointed every time. Um, because, I mean, what I have to offer is not necessarily information that they couldn't find in their book. What I have to offer is expertise in doing something with the information that's already in the book. Hmm. Do you do tests, Nathan, or do you do you just have final papers? Um, I, I kind of in between. They are open book, uh, f- final exam, essay exams. Yeah, that's that's what I do too. Hmm. Mm-hmm. But it makes me nervous because nobody takes notes in my class. Oh, fascinating! See, I. I mine take too many notes. Every time I open my mouth, they start writing it down. And sometimes I say, well, I'm not sure that's right. You might not want to write it down. (laughs) (laughs) This is, this is my discomfort with, with students, by the way, (laughs) this is my discomfort with seminar classes is it, it, it might be too fun. Uh, (laughs) and, 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 the, the 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 you you they need the they need the pain to remember it Skinner style. Uh, so there's something of that, right? I mean, they need to they need to fi- they need to fight for it. Oh, fight against okay. themselves, okay. not against me. Okay. I don't. Know. I don't see. I just let them fight against me. <laughs> okay. I mean, it it really depends on why it's fun. Mm-hmm. I mean, if if it's fun for the reason, if if it's fun like a runner's high. That's different from, well, gosh, that was that was fun, and we laughed a lot, and we had a good time. Scholarship is easy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I guess it depends on 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 why why fun was had. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. But again, it seems like we've already kind of eased into uh, the next uh, the next topic that I wanted to address, which is. What mm-hmm. happens when things go wrong? Um, I mean, I, I I just have to confess that one of the reasons why I prefer lecture mm-hmm. is my memories of ineptly handled discussion classes, ones I've been in and ones I've attempted to preside over. Oh, right? sure, oh, sure. When and they so, go wrong, they go so wrong. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so I mean, I, I'm 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 just I'm just going to admit that, frankly, these days I'm too paranoid to surrender the helm. <laughs> <laughs> So we belabored what was wrong with the lecture, um, but how can a seminar go awry? And Nathan, you, you've 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 uh, you've you know identified yourself as the Pollyanna and said mm-hmm. that sometimes you're disappointed. What <laughs> what what can go wrong? And then what do you do? Oh, certainly. I mean, I I am a, I am a very aware Pollyanna, I guess, <laughs> or or I'm I'm just delusional. I know perfectly well what can go wrong, and I do it anyway. Uh, but I mean, there's a few, uh, if I could just do sort of a taxonomy of the bad seminar, I mean, there is the, uh, (laughs) what I think of as the Terry Dibble seminar. He was an American lit professor of mine in college. Uh, I, he died a few years ago. I love him dearly, but there would be some days in class he would come in, set his Norton anthology on the table and say, so what'd you think? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, so I mean, you know, uh, now I am the sort of student and this might be why he did it when I was in the room, 
that I would take that as a personal challenge to make the class interesting by my own sheer will. Uh, but frankly, uh, I have heard stories of Terry Dibble doing that in other seminar settings where he said, what did you think? And then there was silence in heaven for about half of an hour. Uh, so, I mean, uh, you know, that's sort of one extreme. Another extreme is the sort of uh, stereotype of the small group Bible study. Uh, I've not been a part of many of these, and, and usually I'm leading them, so I'm doing the Socratic thing. Uh, but I've heard of, you know, small group Bible studies where the main sort of question that you get is, how does this make you feel? And yeah, the, it becomes the book club, the, the book club uh, seminar. Yeah, yeah, and again, I and, and I'm a bad book club member because I always turn it into a Socratic dialogue. I I, <laughs> I basically infect every group that I get get into. I think, uh, but you know, uh, again, from stories that I've told, I mean, you know, certain uh, ways of teaching never do challenge anything that anyone says. Everyone just gets a chance to say their piece, and then you know, everything is just sort of equally accepted so i mean those are certainly uh you know two uh, two kinds of bad seminar another one is the read the professor's mind seminar uh oh, yeah. you know the professor has a very particular answer uh that will set that will uh suffice as an answer to the question posed to the group and until the group says that the professor just says no that's not it no that's not it no that's not it the read uh, my mind question i like to call it <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Although I don't say, no, that's not it. I say, that's great, not what I'm looking for. And then I yell at them to read my mind just to demonstrate how, <laughs> how unreasonable I know I am. Oh, and see, sometimes <laughs> I castigate myself for doing that in a class. I say, okay, I'm playing read the professor's mind. I need to stop. Um, yeah. <laughs> What's so the most important thing in this text? Yes, there you go. <laughs> I have a specific... The other sort, you know, like I said, I mean, and this I think of as more a symptom of graduate seminars than of undergraduate seminars, but it is the uh, the epic ego rap battles of history seminar uh, where the Lacan person is going to talk for 15 minutes about Lacan, irrespective of what text we actually read for class. Uh, Grubbs, you and I were in that Spencer seminar together you know exactly the people I'm talking about in that group. It was uh, a delight. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> um, Lacan people are the worst people. Yeah, and I know. I, I just like, Lacan, I, 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 don't mean, I don't mean they're like terrible people, but when they get going, because nobody else, who's, nobody who's not a Lacan person can understand Lacan at all. <laughs> and he and he takes he takes normal everyday words and turns them into like super hyper theoretical words. Yes, uh, with I, very very limited connotations. So that if you use the word imprecisely, the Lacanian will say, "Well, no, what that word actually means is." And like Lacan is so confusing that that his most basic disciples can't agree on the basics of what he's saying. So when you get a Lacan like people Jesus. can't even talk to other Lacan people. <laughs> so listeners, if we have any Lacan people out there, feel free to write in. I just cannot imagine we have a lot of Lacanians listening to this show. Oh, you know, and uh, explain to us in impenetrable jargon while we are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm baiting the listeners. This probably isn't good. Um, but yeah, so Michael, I mean, those are four kinds of seminars gone wrong i mean all of them have the common thread that 
the inquiry itself stops being central and something else that should be peripheral becomes central, I think. I realize that's a very platonic way to think about it, but I mean, what else about a seminar can go wrong? Oh, well, you can have students who, aren't, who don't want to talk, who aren't ready to talk. You can, mm-hmm. have, uh, you, can have, you can have students who hate each other, students who are afraid of each other. I'm, I'm blaming it all on the student, whereas you're blaming it all on the professor. <laughs> well, I also have a guilty conscience. <laughs> I will tell my favorite seminar story, and, and this involves our intern, Amberly. Uh, Uh-oh. It was a very small class, um, maybe seven, eight students, and there were only two or three who would talk at all, and a couple mm-hmm. of them were absent. So I forget what we were talking about, but I remember Amberly said something, and I said, would anybody like to argue with her, which is what I do when somebody says something interesting and nobody replies. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a good 15, 20 seconds of silence, and then Amberly presented the opposing viewpoint to her own <laughs> argument. <laughs> So nobody else would do it, so she had to do it for herself. In a class like that, when you have so few people who are willing to fight, yeah. I, I don't know how you can run a seminar. That, that, that class was frequently frustrating to me. Now, it, right now I have a pretty good crop of majors who, will, who enjoy arguing with each other and, and, and mm-hmm. who are insightful and good readers. But if you don't have that, if you can't count on the students, you've really got a, you've really got a, a, a bad seminar. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know what the professor can do with with people who aren't interested in talking. Mm-hmm. It, it, especially if they're not um, if they're not acculturated in that in that approach to learning, because mm-hmm. um, I, I I've had quite a number of very intelligent students who simply will not participate in a class discussion. Mm-hmm. Because that's not because just because they won't, mm-hmm. um, and they, they have wonderful things to say one on one, and they write excellent papers. Um, they just don't talk in a group. What do you do, David? What do I do? Yeah, what do you do with this? You don't do seminar classes. Well, I mean, sometimes <laughs> uh, sometimes seminar classes happen to me, um, mm-hmm. which is actually my preference, um, which is. If if over the course of the semester, and sometimes from the very beginning, um, I've had a couple classes where where it actually worked like this, where where students showed up wanting to talk about it, and so I could say you know I could kind of say a few things that I that I thought needed to be said, but then and then kind of let them go, and so I see it you know I see it more more as. Um, I hope a good discussion happens, but if it doesn't, I'll just keep talking. <laughs> um, so, so that uh, I, I I hate the silence. Mm-hmm. You got to get I, used to the silence, though. Like, like that's your most powerful skill as a teacher is like being more comfortable with the silence than the students are. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm just terrible. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, you got to practice though. You know, here, yeah. something I do sometimes is I say I'm going to ask a question and nobody can answer for 90 seconds. Huh. And okay. that, that's actually a pretty good way to get students who wouldn't normally talk to talk. Because a lot of times when students don't talk, it's because they feel like they need time to formulate their thoughts and they don't have it because somebody like Amberly is rushing in. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so 
and that'll also make you more comfortable with the silence because if you can stand ninety seconds of silence, uh, you're you're gold. Okay. Yeah, what I tend to do is I I tend to you know if a seminar lags like that, I'll say everyone get out something to write. I'm going to give you sixty seconds to write down and answer this question, and then I'll just point at one of them. I'll say read what you got there, and then I'll point at someone else once they've done so, and I'll say okay, what did they just say? Rephrase it for me, and usually that primes the pump if you will and it gets it rolling interesting Hmm. that's a good idea Hmm. nathan what do you do what do you do in terms of grading your class discussions generally i don't do you do do just participation i don't even do that honestly and and again i mean participation requirement no i mean my, my grades in my courses come from uh online written responses to readings and then from you know formal written assignments exams things like that the I and I, I realize that I mean you know pedagogically that takes some of the chips off the table for classroom discussions, but because the ideas that I t- try to get at are difficult, I want students to have the room to grow into them. So I try not to evaluate that part. Hmm. Interesting. I, I just do straight participation. Okay. But I'm I'm interested. I have a colleague who grades like what you say in class, which number one, I, I think that would be terrifying if you were a yeah. student. And and number two, uh-huh. like I I wouldn't I, I I could not pay that close attention to to do mm-hmm. it. You know, it would take me out of the classroom. I'm I'm kind of amazed that uh my colleague can do that. Mm-hmm. In the in the classes where I have participation, it's um it's just by being at every class, you get a certain level. And then if I remember you talking, you know, did you ever say a word? Okay. Then that bumps you up. Do I remember you talking a lot? Well, that bumps you up all the way. Right. That's how I do my freshman classes. Yeah. What what I tend to do instead (laughs) is, you know, like I said, if I've got two or three people doing all the talking, I'll have everyone write something, and then I'll call on someone to read what they wrote, mm-hmm. now just so the, I hear their voice. Now is the time to tell my favorite Roger Lundin story. I read after he Uh-oh. died last year. I read um, I read all these stories about him in the classroom, mm-hmm. and uh, he he was teaching a seminar, and uh, this student was talking too much, so he pulled out duct tape and put it over the student's mouth <laughs> and then um and then decided he also was talking too much and and put duct tape over his own mouth <laughs> oh that's wonderful that's wonderful so i after i read that i i did do one one um class period that semester where i i i had a student bring in like a she, she she's a, allergic to dust so she she brought in one of those surgical masks and I put it mm-hmm. over my mouth, and I didn't say a word the whole semester. And that that was very interesting. And, and they could do it because it was a good group that had had practice with me the whole semester. And by mm-hmm. the end of the by the end of the semester, they were perfectly capable of of carrying on the discussion without me. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Well, Michael, uh, I'd like to revisit the Socratic method because you know, again, I'm confused about it. So if I can't formulate a good question. Uh, this approach is pretty much dead on arrival, and that's kind of what I found. So what does a good question do, and how do I make one of those? 
oh, I don't know. A good question destabilizes in some ways. So mm-hmm. they, they think they've come to the answer and they, the good question um, kicks their feet out from under them so that they have oh. to find their, their feeding, footing again. Mm-hmm. Um, a good question opens things up rather than closing them off. A, a good question makes them think about things they couldn't have thought about if you hadn't asked the question. Which is why, mm-hmm. for, for me, a good question is often connected with some sort of information that may not have been available to them before. Whether that's just mm-hmm. you having more experience with the text and being able to read more closely, whether it's you bringing in an outside reader, bringing in uh, a critic who you who you quote and then ask a question about it. But like, like the things you say in a seminar need to be designed to push them deeper into the water than they otherwise would have gone um, because they, you know, weren't ready for it. So that's what a good question does. I answered mostly metaphorically. Did that help? (laughs) Uh, I I like your, I like your destabilization, kicking the feet out from under them because that's actually what I appreciate from, from students when they ask good questions of me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I'll say something in class and then, and then someone will be like, Hey, but what about that? And then I'm like, Oh, that's good. And that's right. And let's say some more things. Well, mm-hmm. sometimes they've read more closely than I have because I've read it five times, mm-hmm. you know, it's not new to me anymore. So they, they notice things I didn't notice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or in one of my classes, we're talking about the Odyssey and someone raises their hand and says, okay, so how is it that, you know, some people in the underworld have to ask about what's going on with their families? Like Achilles is like, hey, what's going on with my son? But Odysseus's mom knows everything <laughs> that's, that's going on in Ithaca. because she died what, after all, it sta- all that started, right? Well, that, that, end, that ended up being part of the answer. But nonetheless, she still knows what Penelope's doing right now. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so, you know, so we actually had to kind of wrestle with the, okay, is there, you know, is this an inconsistency in the text? Um, you know, what, what might we turn to to see whether there's a way that we can resolve the conflict within the, the text or just say Homer nodded <laughs> mm-hmm. or, 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 or what? And, and that was actually a lot of, uh, that that was a lot of fun. So I, I, I appreciate that idea because that's that's my favorite kind when I get it from my students. When they knock me back on my heels and make me come back to um come back to the text again. Mm-hmm. What about you, Nathan? What do you what do you do to make a to make a question? I, I, I know you had a whole profiles episode about this. Oh sure, sure, sure. Um interview with uh Matthew Lee Anderson. Mm-hmm. Um it's interesting. This is actually part of my pedagogy when I teach the uh, Intro to Philosophy class. First of all, I'll, just to give a little bit of context, I teach it as a an intensive two-week Maymester course. Mm-hmm. So it is uh, four hours a day, five days a week uh, for two weeks. Mm. And, you know, I tell my students, you know, if you've got a job, be sure you're not working extra hours. If you've got a girlfriend, tell her you'll see her, you know, at the end of May. Uh, you <laughs> four know. hours of Gilmore. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. But one of the things I do every day in that class uh, is I actually have a handout called The Art of the Follow-Up Question, Hmm. and I make uh, one of the students, uh, this is actually part of their grade, uh, lead a philosophical conversation about one of the sections from the uh, book Just the Arguments uh, for 20 minutes, 
and I just sit back and, you know, make notes about what kinds of follow-up questions they are posing. So, you know, the sort of uh, templates that I give them, uh, you know, listeners, there's a composition text, a rhetoric and composition textbook called They Say, I Say. They use the method of templates to say, okay, learn how to throw a reverse punch and do it mm-hmm. over and over and over and over again. And then later on when you're in the tournament, maybe you can actually throw one and hit somebody with it. But, you know, I give them this handout of questions like, you know, can you give me an example of that? Have you considered the implication of this? Uh, what kind of a thing is that term that you just used? Uh, you know, have you considered this implication? Things like that, right? So, I mean, the, uh, the idea that I try to present to them is that every question, if you are coming to philosophy in the year 2016, is already a follow-up question mm. uh, because other people have been thinking uh, so always, always picture yourself as coming in and following up on work that somebody else has already done. So that's the sort of approach that I teach my students when I'm trying to teach them the practice of posing questions. Hmm. Interesting. So would you, would you recommend that particular book as a, um, as a resource for those who were wanting to up their Which questioning one's that game? Now? They say uh, well, I say, or, yeah, yeah. That they say the I arguments. say. Well, they say I say. Honestly, is uh, more involved with uh, essay writing. Okay. So you know, they they frame it in terms of make sure that when you write an essay, you are responding to a thought that's already out there in the world, mm-hmm. and they sort of start from that. And it's written by Jerry Graff, who of course wrote the uh, uh, professing literature, that history of the English department. I'm always referring to so. I mm-hmm. I've, I've found myself a disciple of Jerry Graff without intending to become one. For, your, uh, uh, for the Christian humanist bingo players, that guy's name is Gerald Graff. So uh, Nathan is <laughs> shortening yet another name into a familiar nickname. Yeah, when when Jerry Graff writes about Bill Wordsworth, yeah. I, <laughs> nice. Um, but yeah, um, so I, I, I you know I use it in my own freshman comp books alongside Scott Kreider's Office of Assertion. So I certainly recommend that book. As far as the art of the follow-up question, I mean, that is something that I kind of developed in my own practice, you know, just reading around in intro to philosophy books, reading around in sort of uh, critical thinking-based rhetoric handbooks. Uh, mm-hmm. I just kind of compiled it and refined it over the course of the last several years. So I, I might, David, I, if you can remind me, I might put a copy of the current version of that in the show notes for this episode. Well, I know I'd appreciate that. Cool. Well, we need to round out this hour, and then, um, Nathan, last time you asked me to take the discussion from school to church in the lecture episode, so I yes. will return the favor. <laughs> um, how might the church's use of the seminar, how might the church use the seminar approach in its teaching context? And do you see some kind of tension between the New Testament's notion of pastors, elders, with teaching authority and then the way that the seminar democratizes things. Cause that's immediately my kind of, I'm not sure about the seminar. Oh, certainly, certainly. And I, and first of all, I'll just go ahead and say that I certainly think that, uh, elders should be teaching, uh, you know, in my tradition, we don't use the, the, the shepherd metaphor all that often. So I'll just say elders. Um, and that said, I, I think that, you know, as someone who spent three years delivering a 20-minute oration from the pulpit every Sunday, 
uh, I'll admit that, you know, I think that I was doing some good work there, but I, I still come back to uh, Socrates' notion in the, dia- in the dialogue, The Phaedrus, that ultimately because, by convention strictly, because of course they were all physically capable of talking back at me, but by convention they weren't supposed to pose questions as I was doing that. I think I did much better teaching in the hour before the Eucharist service in the Sunday school classroom because mm-hmm. I did run it in a more Socratic style where we, all, where we all were open to the same page of 1 Corinthians, and I was posing questions to them and trying to get them to articulate understanding of that text rather than telling them how to understand the text. Uh, so, I mean, for that reason, I mean, you know, I, I stepped into the pulpit, you know, out of a sense of responsibility, I thought that I would do some good for the church. Uh, you know, obviously, three years later, the elders of the church thought otherwise and canned me uh, in a secret meeting while I was out of town. But, uh, you know, <laughs> not that I'm bitter. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I will say that, uh, you know, like I said, when I read about uh, places like, um, oh, is it Solomon's Porch or the Portico that uh, Carla Ewert works for? Uh, Solomon's Porch. Solomon's Porch. Okay, I, I I knew it was either the uh, the Latin or the English version of that particular place in the Bible. You know, <laughs> I mean, I, I read about their sort of more dialogic style of worship gathering, and mm-hmm. it strikes me that that could be something where genuine learning happened. Now, being from the tradition I am, I still wonder, okay, how do you do Eucharist that way? Uh, and And, you know, honestly, I've never visited there. Uh, it's been 20 years since I was in Minnesota, so I, you know, I, I couldn't go there. You're welcome anytime, Nathan. Oh, well, thank you, Michael. Uh, so, I mean, it, it, this is one of those things where I, I'm going to land kind of where I did last time, David, and say that when I try to conceptualize this, I think it's the beginning of a very interesting conversation and potentially a very interesting experiment in how to worship as the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, for me, it's got to be the beginning of a conversation rather than the end because I've not actually conducted the experiment myself. Now, when it comes to the democratizing tendency, uh, once again, I think that that sort of, you know, Hegelian contradiction of, you know, the sort of, how does this make you feel on one hand and the, I'm going to tell you exactly what you need to think and you must not think beyond it on the other hand, both of which are usually stereotypes rather than realities i'll go ahead and say Mm -hmm. uh but beyond that contradiction i think there is something like the teacher as someone who brings along the learner as an apprentice rather than as an empty vessel to be filled with the water of my glorious knowledge right so so that there there there's a, a definite need for the teaching office of the church not just to be teaching people about stuff but teaching people how what to do properly with the stuff yes indeed and also you know <laughs> teaching teaching them by proximity and by living together what it would even look like to desire certain goods and certain ends that mm. aren't immediately obvious if you are coming up in a historical cultural moment where the ends are very different so, I mean, I, I, and, and I always fear when I talk like that, I'm starting to sound like the youth minister who says, I just want my kids to have relationships with me. Well, no, the relationship <laughs> itself cannot be the central thing, yeah. but it is a benefit that emerges out of it. So, I mean, it's one of those, you know, seek first the 
kingdom of heaven and it's Dekayasune, and these things will be added to you. Don't make these other things the main thing because mm-hmm. then you don't get any of it really. Right. Right. The, 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 the kingdom is the first thing. You get yes, all the indeed. other stuff yes, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> cool. Anything you want to toss in there, Michael? No, I, I mean, I think I think Nathan covered it pretty well. I I worry more than he does. I think about what would happen if you don't have a traditional sermon. But I also recognize mm-hmm. that that's a historical development. I, I mean, it's not, mm-hmm. I, as far as I can tell, not demanded by the New Testament. Right, and I and I think that's a recurring theme when we have these episodes, Michael. That uh, you worry more than I do, and I regret later on more than you do. <laughs> Yeah, how can you worry so little and yet be so paranoid? (laughs) It's all ex post facto. Uh, It's one of my many glorious personality defects, Michael. Yeah. Nice. You know, which I'm still pretty pretty committed to the to the historical precedent of the homily, but still, I, I I don't think that that can entirely describe what, um what sort of teaching ought to be happening in the church. And it certainly doesn't train um, a next generation in how to, in how to do it properly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that, that I think is a big concern too, because teaching is not just the stuff, but how, to, but what, to, but what do you do with the stuff? Right. And honestly, I mean, that's my big problem with the entertainment model is that it abstracts the content delivery part from the, living in community part and the living mm-hmm. community is what you do at Taco Bell and the content is what happens when you've got the microphone headset on your noggin and yeah. those two don't speak to each other enough so that you know and and you know I realized we talked about this all the way back in 2009 when we were talking about youth ministry but what happens is kids go off to college or go off into the workforce and they still enjoy getting together with people, you know, maybe at Chipotle instead of Taco Bell because they're 30 instead of 16. Uh, but <laughs> they want a different the, kind of diarrhea. Yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> but first of all, I acknowledge that's the best joke of the episode. Uh, but you know, uh, there's not a, a sort of you know developed and articulatable connection between the pursuit of that kingdom and the enjoyment of the company of the faithful around you. And without that connection, I mean, what happens is, I mean, the content drops away and you get something like, you know, sort of, I don't know, Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. Or coffee and donut hour where everybody yeah. talks about their children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Well, that rounds out, um, our, Seminar discussion of seminars, I guess. <laughs> I heard you like seminars. <laughs> yeah, so which which incidentally I think uh, uh, spawned some some useful mini lectures. You know. Anyways, <laughs> well, dear listeners, if you've got uh, any uh, any comments that you want to make on this episode, anything you want to you know, throw into the discussion here. Um, uh, interesting destabilizing questions you want to pose uh, 
that's uh, that's something that you, we welcome, and you can send those to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can post them as comments on the show notes when they uh, show up on our blog, uh, christianhumanist.org, or you can post them on our Facebook wall. You can like us on Facebook. You can give us uh, good ratings, we hope, on uh, iTunes as well. What are we doing next week, gentlemen? Well, 40 years ago, uh, one of the great sports movies hit the theaters. And we're going to be talking about Rocky next week. Sweet deal. I've never seen Rocky. This is going, oh, to, this is going to be new for me. I, I really do think you're going to enjoy it. Huh. My mother-in-law loves them all, but I've never seen, I've never seen any of them. Oh, that I can't say, but the original is really quite good. <laughs> well, dear listeners, uh, look forward uh, to... What I will be looking forward to, an interesting conversation about a a fun movie that Michael has never seen. So, in the meanwhile, the Christian Humanist Podcast is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern is Amberly Copeland. I am David Grubbs on behalf of Michael Farmer and Nathan Gilmore, uh, wishing you all grand weeks and leaving you with wise counsel from Martin Luther. Let your sin be strong. Let your faith be stronger.